Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Rory Scholl. This is so much fun. <laughs> It'd be a lot more fun if with my drinky poos, which is what adorable alcoholics say. <laughs> that and more. But first, folks, the next Risk live stream is on Saturday, April 25th, and it's going to be incredible. You know, you can always find tickets for these live streams at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, the first three, I just can't exaggerate. I, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how inspiring, how much fun these have been. We just did one this past weekend that had me laughing and crying. I felt like I was giving a hug to everyone watching and all the storytellers. I have to say that, you know, out of difficult circumstances, sometimes truly beautiful and wonderful things do come about to keep us filled with hope and the spirit to keep on thriving. And these Risk Livestream shows really have turned out to be precisely that. So the next one is this Saturday, April 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The cast and the stories are incredible. Kelly Dunham, DC Benny, Catherine Wu, and Burke Hefner. It's going to be one of those risk shows that goes from hilarious to sexy to heartbreaking to jaw-dropping. Saturday, April 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets. And... Have you considered pitching us to be on one of these live stream shows? It doesn't matter if you're in Beijing or Lima or Juno. <laughs> you could share a story on one of these remarkable risk live stream shows if you pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Remember, we coach the storytellers. We help them prepare for the show. So you might not think you're up for it, but I'll bet you could pull it off. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions and pitch us your story. Also, Adam and Eve says the best part of staying at home is playing at home. Take advantage of the downtime and choose almost any one item at 50% off. When you do, you'll get 10 free boredom-busting gifts, including six spicy movies, a three-piece bonus kit, and free shipping delivered right to your door. Remember, the offer code is RISK. That's RISK at the checkout. Adam and Eve has thousands of products to make you glad you're staying at home. Uh, sex toys make being at home enjoyable. Enjoyable. Hell, even shopping from home is more enjoyable when you're shopping for sex toys. So go to adamandeve.com and use that offer code RISK. Now here's the show. Hey 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Stereo Lab behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode The Bright Side. A lot of positivity on this episode, a lot of optimism. I've been really enjoying how in the past few weeks we've been able to like take a look back at our archives and have some fun pulling out some stuff that you haven't heard before, but also feature stories from people from right now especially ones that are hopeful, especially ones that are about people discovering ways to transcend, ways to find the wherewithal within to keep on creating, just like we are here with the show and with our live streams. Uh, Just a reminder, if you didn't hear it in the open announcement, next live stream is Saturday, April 25th, at 8 p.m. Eastern, and tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. One thing that's kept me super hopeful during this period is learning a lot about how to get involved with organizations that are looking out for the more vulnerable. I've been, I've been very impressed by the new Sanctuary Coalition, another group called Never Again action. A dear friend of mine is involved with something called the Damayan Migrant Workers Association. That's D-A-M-A-Y-A-N. The more connected we can be in helping each other out, you know, mutual aid in all kinds of ways. You might be surprised at ways you might be able to help someone out. Also, um, Something happened this past weekend that I think is going to result in nearly nude images of me dropping on the internet this week. So if you don't follow us uh, on your socials, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Uh, (laughs) We're going to see. We're going to see what happens with this possibility of uh, me being exposed in all new ways. Let's get to the stories now. In a little bit, you're going to hear from the hilarious John Early, who you might know from Wet Hot American Summer, Broad City, High Maintenance, Difficult People. John's all over the place. Before that, a little something from Risk fan Sam McKinley. And before that, a story from Rory Scholl. Now, Rory shared a much longer version of, well, actually, it was a whole different story, really, but some of these same things happen in it. It was one of those stories that we helped prepare for Amazon Kindle and audio. Uh, It's called Black Sheep. If you go to Amazon and look that up, it's fabulous. But here is the much shorter, much simpler version that Rory shared on a Risk Live show a few years back. Here is Rory now with a story we call Black Sheep. Thank you. 
Okay. My grandmother took her coffee black so the sugar and cream wouldn't interfere with all the whiskey she would put in it at every meal. She was a huge gambler and alcoholic, and she taught me everything I know about being a gambler and an alcoholic. Every time I caught her with her flask, she'd give me a little wink and a smile. And for a time, my grandmother and I were really close, but that wasn't always the case. And unfortunately, that's never been the case with my immediate family. I always knew I was different from my parents and my sister. We all had different values. They liked the straight and narrow path, going to college, getting a wife, saving money, watching what you're talking about, what you say to people. Not bad things, but not fun things. Meanwhile, my grandmother would adopt every stray cat in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and she would open up her doors when all the bars closed, and she blew her retirement with her bookie, but she was having fun, you know, doing it her way. My parents were always looking down on me and over my shoulder and waiting for me to screw up, but you know, I had to play by their rules or I'd get kicked out of their house. It's not that they were against me going into the entertainment field, it's that they were very fair weather about it. Like when things were going really well, they were in my corner. But the minute something uh, went south, they told me to straighten up, get a life. My mom's favorite phrase was, you're gonna die alone. So that's uh, encouraging. And somewhere along the line, they just kind of gave up on me, I guess. Two weeks before I turned 30, they took me to a P.F. Chang's, gave me a $50 Kmart gift card, and said, consider this your birthday dinner. Um, Thanks, yeah. Nothing says I love you like a gift card and lettuce wraps. Thank you. So um, my grandmother was getting too old to live by herself, so she had to come down from Pennsylvania to move into my parents' house in Dallas, Texas. I had already moved out at the time. I knew this was not a good idea, and sure enough, Two months later, they put her in a nursing home. And my mom called and asked if I would uh, check up on her and visit her once a week. And I jumped at the chance because, number one, my parents, they never asked me to do anything. So this was kind of maybe my way back into the family. And number two, if anybody in this stupid family can understand me, it was my grandmother. So I went there, and it's your typical depressing nursing home. It's got the weird hotel art on the walls and uh, the little patios for smoking with the plastic squirrels and farm animals for some reason, the big giant wooden tables with the nicks in it from the wheelchairs hitting them, and the nasty green carpet, bad TV on the wall. So I got in there, and she was excited, because that day she had just won big at bingo, like she got a stuffed cat and a year-old Reader's Digest or something like that. She was over the moon. She was so excited, so she said, will you come back and play this with me uh, the next week? And I said, sure, yeah, that sounds fun. And so I did. It was just as depressing as you think. All these old people, you know, with their bobbers and they're fighting. It was like reverse Hunger Games type of thing. It was very frightening. And I think I won that day. I think I won like a sponge and an I Love Florida coffee mug or something like that. And I gave it to my grandmother. And she's like, this is just like Atlantic City. And I was like, if this is Atlantic City, I'm never going. No. Um, So we took all of her stuff back to her room. And she didn't live by herself. She had a roommate. Uh, this little old 87-year-old bedridden woman named Grace. They had a weird relationship. Sometimes they'd get along. I'd come in, they'd be laughing together, watching South Pacific or something. And the next day I'd come and they'd be crying and yelling at each other over who took whose knee pillow. So, and Grace never had any visitors either, so I think she resented my grandmother for having visitors, which was a, a little odd. So 
after one of these bingo days, she says, boy, I really miss my gambling. And I was like, you do? I said, well, damn it, you're 93. If you want to gamble again, we're going to make that happen. So uh, the next time I came in, I had a stack of scratch-off lottery tickets. And I was like, all right, we're turning this into casino night. And I took her little bed tray, and I put like the tickets on there. I was like, okay, pretty lady, what are you playing tonight? She's like, oh, this is great. The three fish for $5 or something. And she'd scratch it off. And it was a lot of fun. And so the next week, I brought even more, and you know, we'd line it up. She'd scratch them off, and I'd give her the option of uh, either cashing it in, like I could give her money, or get more tickets. And she always wanted to get more tickets because she's a gambler. Uh, that's how that works. So one day we're playing, and we're having a good time, and she looks up at me after winning, and she's like, this is so much fun. <laughs> It'd be a lot more fun if, with my drinky poos, which is what adorable alcoholics say. <laughs> so... Drinking poo, so I was like, damn it, you're 93. If you want to drink, you should be able to drink. So the next day, I come in with a stack of lottery tickets and little tiny bottles of rum and little tiny bottles of wine. And we get shit-faced. And we're scratching off the tickets together. And we're having a great time. And I turn jazz music on. And it's super fun. And one week I'm doing this. We've done this for a couple of weeks. And I guess one week Grace was in a particularly foul mood. And she said we were being too loud. And she was going to contact the director of the nursing home. Now, Grace liked um, butterscotch candies because I brought them in one time. But she couldn't eat them anymore because she didn't have teeth. So I made a deal with Grace. I said, Grace, if you don't say anything about this, I will bring in a four-pack of butterscotch pudding every time. I'm in here. And that seemed to make her happy. So for about two months on one side of the curtain, my grandmother and I were getting drunk, gambling, listening to jazz music. And on the other side of the curtain, Grace would watch some like it hot and fill her mouth with pudding. And it, it worked out for everybody. It was a lot of fun. And I got to know my grandmother so well. Turned out her mom was an opera singer in vaudeville. My grandmother was always excited about any audition I had or any club I was playing at. We became really, really close in that time. It was a lot of fun. So I get a call from my mom saying, hey, we need to go down to the nursing home. Something happened with grandma. And of course, I'm thinking the worst. She fell and hit her head. She and Grace killed each other. <laughs> I don't know. So I race down there and I drive in and I go inside. In the room, on one side of the curtain, is my grandmother, my mom, my dad, my sister, and Mrs. Doherty, who is the um, director of the nursing home. And there's so many people on that side, the curtain can't close, so inadvertently Grace is in this meeting as well. So I get there and everyone's already staring daggers at me. Like, what's, what's happening? And uh, Mrs. Doherty holds up a tiny little Bacardi bottle. And she says, uh, who's been sneaking alcohol into this room? And I look at my grandmother, and she looks like a five-year-old that just dropped an F-bomb. She's like, mm, mm, no, no. And I look over at Grace, and uh, she's staring at me. And I'm just trying to get a message to Grace mentally. I'm like, you better keep your pudding-filled, toothless mouth shut, old woman. You know? And so Mrs. Doherty asks again, who's been bringing alcohol into this nursing home? And I look at Grace, and Grace looks at me, and Grace looks at Mrs. Doherty, and my grandmother says, it's my grandson, he's been forcing me to drink. <laughs> Unexpected. And so I start laughing, I was like, oh yeah, I guess so, but it was not funny to anyone else. <laughs> My parents are shooting daggers at me. Grace sticks her tongue out at me. My parents take me out in the hall and they start yelling at me like I just committed murder. I did the wrong thing, I screwed up, and now I'm out of the circle again. I'm on the outside of my family looking in. 
they were furious. And then me, after finding out I couldn't come visit my grandmother as age 29 without adult supervision was a little embarrassing too. And so I was angry at first at my grandmother. Why did she sell me out like this? I couldn't figure it out. And so I'm sitting in the car trying to calm down and I realize I know exactly why. And it's something I totally get. She's living in a house under someone else's rules, just looking for ways for her to screw up. And if she does, she's out of there. So she has to protect herself. So I wasn't upset with her anymore. I was incredibly thankful that we got to do it in the first place because it meant so much that we had this time. And so I sat in my car. I drank one of the little bottles of rum. (laughs) I uh, scratched off the lottery tickets I had brought to share with Grandma, and I won two bucks. Thank you. Two thousand and nineteen was not my year. I spent the majority of the year waking up with this gnawing dread just in the pit of my stomach, interspersed with random waves of panic that was like a cold bucket of water being thrown over you. I knew why I was anxious, and I was anxious because I'm transgender. I had finally, at the age of thirty four, started coming to terms with it and I was panicking. So fast forward to just before this pandemic and I start my medical transition. I get my first injection of testosterone and it is though the brightness has been turned up on your television. I am high on testosterone. I have energy, happy, I'm calm. Then COVID-19 panic hits, everything shuts down, people are losing their jobs, my friends have lost their businesses, they can't fly home for funerals, they've cancelled their weddings, everything has just gone to shit. Then last week my voice started dropping. I filmed myself talking and then I compared it to a video that I'd taken before and it was noticeable. It was so amazing. I just burst into tears of utter joy. I was so ecstatic and I wanted to share it with people but then I felt guilty. I felt guilty because everyone else was having such a terrible time. People were panicking about money and food and illness and how dare I feel happy? How dare I feel joy? How dare I feel blissful? So yesterday I went to pick up my new prescription of testosterone in the pharmacy, just picking it up. I had a beaming smile on my face I think back to last year how miserable I was the panic attacks the tears, the breakdowns the tough, tough conversations with the loved ones I deserve to feel happy I deserve to enjoy my life I deserve to feel euphoric about feeling like me I'm going to enjoy it despite the world burning around me because Life is pretty short.
Hello, everyone. This will come as a shock to most, if not all of you, but in high school, I was in show choir. Uh, and in December of my freshman year, so I would have been 14, we came to New York City as a choir and performed in a holiday concert at Lincoln Center. And um, I want to be clear, we paid to get in. <laughs> we did not audition. Had there been an audition process, we would not have gotten in. <laughs> we were very bad. For a show choir, we were comprised of a lot of non-singers. <laughs> But yeah, I was 14, so I would have just gone through kind of like my biggest growth spurt. I had gone from being a pear-shaped young Leanne Rhymes <laughs> suddenly in like a month to like Karen Carpenter in her final hours. <laughs> I was gorgeous, okay? I was so skinny. I had the clavicles of Natalie Portman. And it was the first time I had ever gotten any sort of attention whatsoever from guys. And I was like a year into understanding that I even wanted that at all, okay? And at that age, I was like fueling my fantasy life with like queer as folk DVDs, like rented in secret. Like my mom would drop me off at Blockbuster. She would go grocery shopping. She'd pick me up and she'd be like, what did you rent? And I'd be like, Babette's Feast. <laughs> screaming Babette's Feast, as if that would make me sound any less gay. <laughs> and I'd watch Queer as Folk, and I'd like take my dog out, who was named Muriel after Muriel's wedding, by the way. Again, how did I not realize that everyone knew I was gay? But um, I would take my dog out, you know, under the Nashville sky, and I would like pretend to have conversations with the characters from Queer as Folk. I'd be like, Brian, not here. <laughs> Wait till they get home, you know? <laughs> so you can imagine, like, every kind of, like, furtive glance I shared with a guy or anything resembling flirtation with a guy was so charged for me. So, like, <laughs> this trip to New York when I was essentially stalked and upon further reflection, lightly sexually assaulted um, by George from Georgia, I was pumped, Okay. <laughs> I was pumped. George was from another choir, okay? He was from Georgia, and he was 18, I was 14, okay? And he had like thin yellow hair <laughs> and teeth of corn. <laughs> but he was ripped and horny, okay? And he was so persistent. Like for instance, like the first day of rehearsal, they were arranging us by height on these risers that we would eventually sing on. And he was like probably five inches taller than me, but he bent down like five inches so that he could be right next to me, okay? And like the whole time we were rehearsing, he'd be like leaning over in my ear like, I wanna eat your ass. <laughs> Which like at that point I fully, truly didn't know what that entailed. <laughs> but I was like, George, stop! <laughs> Like, already spinning his, like, pervy behavior into, like, a George and Emily R-Town fantasy, like, over a strawberry phosphate, trying to make it, like, pure and beautiful. Later that night, after our first rehearsal, my, my show choir, we were going out for another round of caramel frappuccinos, and he, like, stole me away from my choir, and he was like, show me your room, show me your hotel room. And I was like, what? 
you know, because that is like so against the rules to step away from your choir, okay? And I never broke the rules. I was such a good boy, okay? And he follows me up to my hotel room. Door closes behind us. He immediately grabs me and like, he was like, let's have sex. <laughs> Just very subtle. <laughs> and I was like, no. And then he was like, he was like kind of pissed. He was like, can I at least blow you? And I was like, no. <laughs> For those of you at home listening, I'm nodding vigorously while saying no. Um, but I was so terrified and so turned on and like broke free and like found my choir at Starbucks and like told all the older girls in my choir who I idolized about the story and they were like freaking out and like fanning the flames. It was huge, okay? The next day, I'm like with my sweet choir teacher, Judy. I see George and he like, comes up to me. He's like, he's like, let's get a picture. Let me get a picture with you and your teacher. And like he gets in between us like, and like keeps stalling. He keeps being like, sorry, take another one. I didn't like that. He's like, sorry, one more. Like a silly one this time. You know, because he was the whole time he had his hand down my pants and was like fingering me. Okay, jabbing his fingers into my asshole. It was like this mix of like utter revulsion, fear, and like, hey. (laughs) But I think he knew at that point that I wasn't responding to like his like perverse, you know, sexual advances. By the way, at that age, they were perverse. Now I'm a freak, okay? But he knew I wasn't responding to that tactic, so he changed tactics. And the final night when we were like doing the, the concert at Lincoln Center, thank you, we were in the second row, so we were protected by a first row of young singers. And uh, he held my hand the entire concert. It was the most romantic thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. You must know that I, at that point, I had not done anything with the boy. The most I had done with the boy was like, hump an entertainment weekly with Usher on the cover, okay? (laughs) Nothing, okay? So he got me, like the romance of it like fully got me and I was like, I was like, we have to meet up later tonight, we have to meet up. And he was like, I can't. And I was like, what? And he was like, he's like, I have a gig. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I'm a stripper. And I was like, what? (laughs) And like, he went to his gig, I was like, oh, what? And then I went devastated back to my hotel room. My voice cracked. It feels appropriate. But I went back to my hotel room and then he called me like three hours later probably and he was like, meet me in the stairwell, like the, like the East Tower, like stairwell or something. Which by the way, this was the Roosevelt Hotel near 34th Street, which is the hotel that Jennifer Lopez works at in Made Manhattan <laughs> before she gets promoted to the plaza. Okay, so it was a very grim hotel. So we meet up in this like cement hellish stairwell and I'm wearing my like twister board pajama pants because I like needed people to understand that I was quirky. Still do, clearly. And I was like, how was your gig? And he was like, oh, yeah, it was canceled. (laughs) I was like, what? He's like, yeah, we, um, it was canceled, um, my guy, like, from Georgia, he got me a gig up in New York, and uh, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, but then it just got canceled last minute, so I went to TGI Fridays with my choir. And I was like, immediately, it was like, he's a pathological liar. But I was, like, in it. I was still in it because 
it had the bare bones. Like it had at least the bare bones of something that like was slightly romantic. So I was like, just go, just ignore that and just keep going. So then we kissed. Okay, it was my first kiss. We kissed for like an hour. I am thrilled to tell you guys, I was like finding out in the moment, I'm a very intuitive, sensual kisser, okay? <laughs> it was thrilling. And he was like grabbing my dick through my like twister pants. He was like, right hand on yellow. <laughs> okay. I was like, George, you're hilarious. Um, so, yeah, we kissed, and like, in the middle of kissing, he like, kind of pushed away from me, and he was like, God, you're warm, which like still sends douche chills up through my spine. Um, but again, I was like, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. And it was beautiful. And then I was like, well, you know, it was our last night. I was like, let's meet up tomorrow morning. Please, please. And he was like, I would love to. And then he's like, meet me at 7 a.m. Like outside my hotel and we'll go for a walk. And I was like, okay. And so I, the next morning, snuck out of my hotel room, okay, without a chaperone. <laughs> I knocked on his door, he did not answer. And then I was like, I kept knocking, he wasn't answering. So I like awkwardly sat outside his hotel room waiting for him. And then finally, like probably like a half hour later, it was humiliating. He like came out fully like asleep. He was like, wait, sorry, what? And then he's like, oh yeah, no, our walk. Yeah, let's go take a walk. And I was like, oh God, you know, but I was like, whatever, you know, get past that. And then we went outside and we like held hands and we like walked all over, you know, Midtown. <laughs> um, and he was like, as we were walking, he was like, I'm in the military. And in my head, I was like, no, you're not. He was like, if I just like came and picked you up in Nashville, like in my car, would you like run away with me and like escape my like impending enlistment? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> it was total bullshit. But um, it was heaven. I was, it, was, it was snowing and we were like by the Empire State Building. It was heaven. That's my story. Thank you so much. I love you guys. When you are ready, I will surrender Take me and do as you will Have what you want, your way's always the best way I have succumbed to this passive sensation Peacefully falling away I am a zombie, your wish will command me Live as I fall to my knees This is Risk. This is Maloko behind me now. And we just heard from John Early, who you can find on Twitter at Bjonce. <laughs> and before that, we had that wonderful little anecdote from Risk fan Sam McKinley over in Scotland who heard us calling out for people to share their mini stories, stories that are about three minutes and 30 seconds or less, especially about things that have happened to you recently in, in the era we're going through right now. And Sam's perspective 
It was really interesting to hear. It's just, you know, there are so many different kinds of lives and situations that people are in that it really is beautiful and fascinating to hear the variety of life experience that people are having right now. Uh, so send us yours. Send us yours. If you have any questions about how to send us one of your little mini stories there, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. There's also a whole post about it at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, which is a great way to stay connected with the Risk community in general. Speaking of our Risk community, we are so thrilled and so grateful for everyone who is giving to our Patreon right now at patreon.com slash risk. I especially have to give a big shout out to Matt Valerio, Brendan Ware, Amber Digitigrade, Elizabeth, Lejeune Farnsworth, and Christina Drollet. Thank you all so very much. We're so thankful, and we do very much need the help of our fans right now as we're, you know, going through an especially tight time and working overtime to keep this running. We do have 20 people that depend on us that are working on you know, all of our projects here at risk in one way or another, and the story studio, our school. So there's a lot to keep going, and we're doing as much as we can to put content there on Patreon, too. We're going to have an interview with Ray Christian coming up, an interview with risk fan Jen Grippa, who is uh, one of our most vocal fans there on Patreon. I'm going to do another little one of those video check-ins soon. So, uh, well, there's also the bonus stories. Once a week, we put up a bonus story. This week, an absolutely fascinating story that K.L. Parr shared at one of Risk's Baltimore shows. It sounds a little something like this. I run up the steps, I burst into the scene, and I'm like, I need a telescope! Like, it's this big emergency, and they're like, we sell telescopes, yeah, obviously, like. So if you can, please uh, go over to patreon.com slash risk and become a member. If you're already a member and you're able to take the amount you're donating up, we greatly, greatly appreciate that as well. I also want to say there's a Risk fan out there named Chris who emailed to say that his girlfriend, Kim, is surely listening to this and he feels she's the greatest person in the entire world, the best person Chris has ever met, and he just wanted to say how much he loves Kim. <laughs> so that's very sweet to be able to report that message. Here's to Chris and Kim. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of everybody's favorite storytellers in the New York City storytelling scene, Sandy Marks, who you can find at Sandy Marks 3 on Instagram. But before that, a little something from Brad Lawrence, a member of our team right here at Risk. Here is Brad now. 
with a story we call What About Us? I get a phone call from my sister Amy. Amy Brooks, another Risk storyteller. And she says that our brother Rich called up my mom and proceeded to tell her how important she was to him and how much he loved her and how her parenting had made him the man he was today. And he, he proceeded to do this for like a half an hour. Kept her on the phone for like a half an hour telling her all of this. And then once he got off the phone with her, he then made another phone call to our other brother Tim and told Tim for a half an hour how much he loved him and how much their relationship meant to him and how, like, he was so glad that they'd been close for all of these years and on and on and on. And then, after that half-hour phone call, he hung up and called his grown daughter, Marcy, and had her gather her kids around the phone and put him on speakerphone so he could tell them how much he loved them and how proud he was of them and that they were the greatest accomplishment of his life and on and on and on. Again, for like a half an hour. And so, Amy says, she did a little digging and she found out that one of Rich's co-workers had gotten coronavirus and was very, very sick. And now Rich was convinced that he also was going to get coronavirus and he was going to die. And all right, you know, this is a very frightening situation. Coronavirus is very scary. It obviously has the entire nation on lockdown. At the same time, uh, the vast majority of people who actually get coronavirus don't even end up hospitalized. And some percentage never even end up being symptomatic. So while it is very scary and must be taken very, very seriously, at the same time, going from that level of possible exposure to certain death is kind of a leap. But I can also understand why anyone in my family might be very paranoid around issues of death. Because from the outside view, it could seem like my family is cursed by death. My father died when I was three months old. And then when I was three years old, my mom married my stepfather, who had outlived two wives of his own. And then there were eight siblings in the house. Uh, there were half-siblings and adopted siblings, step-siblings, and I could not accurately draw you an org chart for how I was related to all of my eight siblings. But over the course of the decades of us growing up together, four of them had died. So there's only four left at this point. And, you know, after four dead siblings and three dead spouses, it can definitely seem like uh, our family is stalked by death. And so I can understand why Rich might be a little paranoid or anxious around issues of the Grim Reaper. At the same time, it is important to keep a cool head about these things. And so I default back to my rational approach. And I say to Amy, well, has he exhibited any symptoms? I mean, has he had a fever or fatigue or a cough or anything at all? And Amy says, no, not, not a thing. No, no symptoms, no cough, nothing. But you're missing the point. And I say, okay, what's the point? And she says, the point is, neither you nor I has received one of these phone calls. So yes, coronavirus is a moment of clarity for the entire nation. Mm -hmm.
So it's the summer of 1981, and I am walking on Third Avenue in the 50s, and I catch my reflection in one of those like big office windows, and I look hot. <laughs> I am the shit. I've got my feathered hair. It's like up this high. I'm wearing a tube top, shorts, corkies. That's what they were called. They were like platform wedgie shoes, and I'm like walking the walk, and I'm thinking I am... I am just the shit. I am fine. This is total bullshit. I am the biggest loser. I just came out of the subway, the G train. I live in my childhood bedroom at 23. In the bottom of my handbag is a sweaty tuna sandwich that my mother made for me. And I'm on my way to the most ridiculous job. Now, I dropped out of NYU. I was a drama student, but I ran out of money. And I thought, you know, I got enough. I'm an actress. What do I need to learn? And my mother and father kept saying, you have to have something to fall back on. You need a safety net. So I landed in a pile of shit at this job at Herman's World of Sporting Goods. Now, this was like a popular shop back then. Okay, first of all, they gave me a job in what was called the fashion department, which is a loose term because there, there is nothing fashionable about tennis dresses with these pockets that say, I have balls. <laughs> those leisure, so like those warm-up suits in like sherbet colors that were favored by German tourists and my mother who wore it like on every flight to Miami, it's comfortable. Like she's gonna do like one-arm push-ups in the Delta Terminal. Okay, now the worst part of the job was my boss. Her name was Barbara, but she looked just like Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Her skin was like the color of oatmeal and she penciled in her eyebrows in a really high arch. So she looked shocked all the time, or like skeptical. And she had a flat, large face, like a cabbage patch. And her body, her body was just shapes. It wasn't like, it didn't have a form. And she was so mean. So she never talked to me in a nice voice. It was always rhetorical, like, why are you such an idiot? Can't you get anything right? Now, what she was referring to was me putting alarm tags on golf pants. Who the fuck is stealing lime green golf pants? That was my job. And then she would say things like, I asked for Earl Grey tea with milk and sweet and low, not Splenda. Oh, like this genius knows the difference between sweet and low and Splenda. She was a nightmare. But on this particular day at work, I wasn't letting this bitch get in my way because I had a third date with my new boyfriend, Stephen, who was a young attorney, and I already had fantasies that he would get me out of my childhood bedroom, that we were gonna live in a classic six on Central Park West, and I wanted to buy on my lunch hour third date underwear because I wanted to nail this down. <laughs> for Steven. So the plan was at lunchtime, I was going to go across 3rd Avenue and 51st Street to the rainbow shops. Now, if you don't know what the rainbow shops are, think like Marshalls or they have everything. It's like the best store ever. And on my salary, which was like $6 an hour, this was basically like top of the line. Okay. So finally lunchtime comes, I take off my shitty hideous smock and I go across the street, and it's like 90 degrees out. But when I open the door to the rainbow shops, I get that 
blow of air conditioning and they have the Bee Gees on the sound system. It's like I walked in a heaven. I'm, I'm really happy. Okay, so I get inside the store and I go right to the rack with the 34B bras. I need push-up, I need underwire, I need foam, I want to lift, I want my girls out. I need to get this guy on my team. Plus, I want a new underwear, and I was thinking maybe days of the week, I'm not sure, but they have it all there. They have like every color. So I'm just like rifling through the racks, like happy, ha I'm so happy. But then I hear some sort of like kerfuffle at the register in the front of the... Now I'm thinking maybe someone's like having trouble making return of a pair of culottes or his capri... I don't know what's going on. But then I turn around, I'm holding all my shit, and I see a guy with like beady little eyes and dirty hair. He's wearing like one of those, um, what do you call those members only jackets? He's a hot mess and he whips out a gun. And I've seen enough Mannix and Hawaii Five-O. Oh, it's, I know this is real. This is not like a toy gun. Now the cashier, she's like, you could see the color like draining out of her face. And he points the gun at her and he says, empty the drawer, I'm not afraid to use this. And you could see her just like. Okay, now meanwhile, there are only like three or four customers in the store at the time. And we're just standing there with our stuff he whips around, he points the gun right in my face, and he says, put your hands up. So I do. Okay, now I'm shaking. In my right hand are two 34B beautiful bras with everything. It's got, like, they're like miracles before there was a miracle bra. And in my left hand, I've got the days of the week underpants. And all I'm thinking about is my mother, Mrs. Wisdom, who used to say, always leave the house in really good underwear because you could get in a car accident. And if you get in a car accident, you're gonna meet a cute doctor in that ER you wanna look right. So meanwhile, I'm holding the really good underpants and I'm wearing like Hanes for her, they're gray. They got like, a, like an elastic that's, so, I don't know where it belongs to, it's like, okay. And the second thing I'm worrying about is, okay, the New York Post is gonna show up at my mother's door tomorrow. They're gonna want a picture of me. She's gonna give them like my high school picture, you know, for the rampage and rainbow. It's not gonna be good. These are, this is what I'm thinking. Okay, now, in that moment, all of a sudden, miraculously, two police officers come running into the store with their guns out, and they say, get down on the ground, now! So I do. I don't know. I mean, I'm just following orders. So I throw myself down, I put my cheek on that green, industrial, hideous, it smells like just disappointment in cigarettes. It's just, uh, and I'm looking underneath the carousels with all the clothes, you could see like candy wrappers and cigarette butts, because people used to smoke everywhere. It's like just, this, it's like a bingo hall. It's so disgusting. But when I look the other way, I notice ankles and shoes. No one else is lying on the ground. All the other customers are obviously, they're so stupid, they're standing up. And then the officer yells at me, not you, him. I don't care. There could be gunfire. I'm not moving. Where? So I'm lying there. I'm shaking with all of my shit in my hands. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing the Bee Gees, and I start just singing along. Staying alive, staying alive. Staying alive. I just don't want to move. 
Now, by the time I finish my song, I hear the door slam. The cops and the perp, they're out. The other customers, they're gone. It's just me and my bras and my song and my heart. And thinking, I lived, I managed to get through this, so I slowly, I get up. And I put the shit back because I don't want to buy anything anymore. But then I'm thinking, I don't want to leave this store because there's that expression, out of the frying pan into a boiling pot of water. Now, I just might have been shot by a man in a member's only jacket, but I have to go across Third Avenue and be taken hostage by Barbara and her cabbage patch face. So I make a decision. Okay, I leave Rainbow. I stomp in my quirkies back across the street. I get right up in Barbara's grill and I say, Barbara, I can't take it anymore. You're just too mean. I quit. And she looks shocked. But I think it was her eyebrows. I'm not really sure. I don't know. Like, so I just, I give her my smock and I storm out. I, at that moment, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. So I leave. But I know it will work out. And eventually it actually does. So what I do is I take a job in a dance studio as the receptionist. And I figure this is safe. First of all, they never have any money in a dance studio. And second of all, if they're really desperate, are they going to really steal somebody's like jazz shoes? I mean, what is there really to lose? And my boss, he's the cutest guy ever. He's way more Ariel than Ursula. So I know, I know, it's fine, it's fine. And my parents, they're cool about it. They understand. They know that I'm finally doing what I want to do. Stephen and I, okay, we had that third date. And you know what? We didn't need the fancy underwear because it was dark. We were drunk. He couldn't have read Wednesday or Thursday. <laughs> None of that would have mattered. But you know what? It didn't really work out. I was a kid. It, it's okay. It's fine. He went his way. I went mine. But I really learned a valuable lesson that day. You know, my parents kept saying, you know, really, have a fallback plan. Have to have a safety net. And that's sure. It's true. And shit happens. So, folks, shit happens. This is what you should do. Always wear nice underpants and keep a spare pair just in case something really miserable happens. Thank you. Life is sweet. In the belly of the beast, in the belly of the beast, and with her song in your heart, it can never bring you down, it can never bring you down. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Death Cab for Cutie behind me now. And we just heard from Sandy Marks, who you can find on Instagram at Sandy Marks 3. Before that, we heard from Brad Lawrence, who is one of our instructors 
at the Story Studio, and you can find Brad at BradLaw77 on Twitter and Instagram. Spread the word about that Saturday, April 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time live stream show that we're doing with DC Benny, Catherine Wu, Kelly Dunham, and Burke Hefner telling stories. I'll be there hosting. Holy cow. These have been so wonderful so far, and we're thrilled. And you definitely should check it out, and you should like let friends know to come on out. It's at risk-show.com slash tour, where you can get your tickets, and that'll remain the same for all of these. You can always go to risk-show.com slash tour for these live streams we're doing. Again, the next one is April 25th, Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And we hope to see you there. Don't forget, there's so much great content to be found on Patreon at patreon.com risk. There's bonus stories, there's check-ins, there's interviews with storytellers, and so much more, and it means so much to us to get support from our fans, especially during this difficult period we're going through. You may have heard that advertisers have kind of fled podcasting for the time being, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of shakeups with our touring shows and our workshops. That, you know, our money situation is going through an upheaval here. So please help us out if you can at patreon.com slash risk and follow us on your social media on twitter instagram and facebook we're at risk show on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison and our discussion group on facebook at the risk podcast fans discussion group is great we also have a subreddit which is risk podcast guys our online storytelling classes are phenomenal there's one happening on may 2nd and may 3rd with brad lawrence that's storytelling for performance there's one happening on may 23rd and may 24th with amy salloway also storytelling for performance there's a storytelling for business workshop on april 25th and april 26th with gg lee there's one on may 30th and may 31st with cindy freeman that's also storytelling for business and there's one on storytelling for personal growth on june 6th and june 7th with gail thomas these are phenomenal you get to work on stories with other storytellers right there on the screen with you and your teacher and it's really working beautifully so far so check it out and don't forget that the story studio also offers corporate workshops and we're now bringing our corporate workshops online as well we've done workshops for google pfizer citibank american express so many more and it's a tremendous time to be doing those sorts of workshops for team building, morale boosting, um, new messaging around new projects. So that is all at thestorystudio.org. And don't forget that I myself do one-on-one -on -one consultations with people at kevinallison.com. We workshop stories together. I help people prepare for other sorts of creative projects like solo shows or podcasts. I also just do mentoring with people around issues, especially people 
who have issues with their um, sex lives, kink and BDSM, all that kind of stuff, you can find me at kevinallison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. side here somewhere well on the bright side you've invented window art that's why i always say look on the, the bright, bright side. side yes i know on the bright side i found a place to go number two